Good morning, Deep Run family. This morning we will be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're here with us in person and find that you need a Bible, you can feel free um, to take one from the back table. If you're joining us virtually and you need a Bible, just feel free to get in touch with one of us and we'll find a way to get one to you. Um, Please join with me in reading um, from John chapter 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord.
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to God today. We're following Jesus through uh, the disciple whom he loved, known as John, through John's testimony, John's written account of his life, particularly his ministry. This is exciting, and today is this really long section. We could only read half of it. We just didn't have the time to read all of John chapter 6. So I encourage you later today, maybe this week, go back and read all of John chapter 6, and, and I'll try and catch us up on where Caitlin began, which was at verse 41. So Jesus, after more miracles, John calls them signs in this gospel, but Jesus, after more miracles, uh, preaches some really hard sayings, right? And these hard things that he says causes confusion, and a lot of people are offended. And as we read throughout chapter 6, all of chapter 6, we keep seeing Jesus evading the crowds and their expectations. They can't quite get a hold of him physically, and they can't quite comprehend what he's saying thematically, and spiritually. They don't quite understand him because he evades their expectations of what a prophet is and what a teacher is and what a leader should be. So basically, the crowds, you know, hearing and seeing all of these miracles he's performing as he goes from place to place throughout Judea to the south and Galilee to the north, they're following him and uh, he gets in a boat with his disciples and goes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's like a big lake, but that's the Gentile side. And he's over there. And so these crowds from, from, from Israel, they follow him over there. And he's so compassionate, he feeds them. This was the fourth sign in this gospel. 5,000 men, so who knows how many people there when you count all the women and children, and he feeds them with this little kid's meal, and he multiplies it, and they're all fed, and the food is overflowing, and the, the crowds are so impressed that now they're, they're, they're convinced he's the coming Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament talked about, and so they, they want to make him king. They want to do it right then and there, and Jesus sees what's coming, and he escapes. He gets away, and he gets away on foot. He escapes by foot on water. So that's the fifth sign in John's gospel. Jesus escapes on foot by water. And he meets up with his disciples. They're freaked out. He gets in the boat with them. They get across. They're back over on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and they end up in Capernaum, and he's teaching in the synagogue. Well, all the crowds that, that, all the crowds that he blew in the dust, they, they figure out he's gone, and they go back across the lake, and they catch up with him. And so that's the context here. They follow him back across the lake to Capernaum, and that's where he flummoxes them. He just mystifies them by saying things like, in uh, verse 34 and 35, I don't know why I can't get this. We're having, these are the dog days of the clicker. Thank you. Um, here we go. So he, he mystifies them by saying things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But then he tells them, yet you do not believe. You know, we live, we live in a society right now where, where people increasingly um, are offended by religion, by organized religion, even offended by the, the, the concept of Christianity, the core truths of Christianity like the gospel itself, the good news. 
or they're offended by what they think Christianity is. Um, being a Christian requires some persevering through a climate like this. Perseverance through all the confusion and all the offense that's taken. Now, whether you're a longtime Christian or whether you are a brand new Christian or whether you're not sure you're a Christian yet or you know you're not, I want to say something about faith in the context of what Jesus is doing in John chapter 6. Faith is desiring what only God offers. Faith is desiring what only God can give you for daily sustenance and your eternal salvation. And the big idea of what we're trying to uh, say today, next slide, please. I don't know why this is happening. Um, This is what I want to communicate, that being a Christian means hungering for what God alone offers you. Hungering for for what only God can offer you is essence what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to address this in three ways. I want to talk about consuming Jesus' words and digesting Jesus' words and feasting on them. Consuming God's truth, digesting God's truth, but rejoicing in God's truth as we understand it through Jesus Christ. So let's begin. Consuming the truth doesn't always result in understanding it. There's a difference between consuming something and really benefiting from it or understanding it. All of these crowds that are following Jesus, they're attracted to him, but they don't comprehend him. It's clear now in John chapter 6 that everybody who is enthralled with him and interested in him is not necessarily understanding what he's about. And I think John chapter 6 presents two factors that is leading to their general misunderstanding of who Jesus is. The first factor is what they were desiring. Their desires and expectations of Jesus was tripping them up. And secondly, their proximity to him was tripping them up. Yeah, their closeness to him. I'll explain. Now, Their desires for him, I think, were really tripping them up so that they couldn't comprehend the truth that they were consuming as they listened to him. For example, they wanted food. Verse 26, next slide, please. Thank you so much. In verse 26, Jesus says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're following me for the food, he's saying. Now, that's a common attitude he's calling out in them. It's an attitude that we all still see and experience and and possess ourselves to this very day, the attitude of a what-can-religion-do-for-me mentality. Religion should fill me up. Religion should serve me. And we see that it's kind of what their attitude was, and he reveals it to them. They wanted food, and so they were following him. And they also wanted a king, right? They wanted a king to come in like the true ancestor of great King David, and they wanted wanted that king to overthrow the Roman occupiers. They even tried to seize him and make him their king. Another common expectation of religion and religious leaders, even to this day. We commonly expect leadership not to lead, but to concede to our desires. Examine your heart and your thinking next time some leader 
offends you and disappoints you at any level of society, right? Typically, we want leadership to not lead, but to concede to our desires and expectations for them. And that's what they're doing with Jesus. So their desires and assumptions for Jesus were tripping them up so that they couldn't comprehend what they were consuming from the mouth of Jesus. But also, I think what was tripping them up was their proximity to him. That may seem odd, but their closeness to Jesus actually tripped them up. Next slide, please. In verse 42, we find out, John tells us, they start saying to one another, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, we know where this guy lives. We knew where he grew up. And they say, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We know his father and mother. We know the situation surrounding his birth how his mother was pregnant before they were married. Now he's saying that he comes from heaven. And now they're, 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 they're talking about this. They can't understand it. See, the miracles were enough for them all to believe that he was the Messiah. But the words, the words offended them that he had come down from heaven because he's a local, right? You've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt, Right? Kevin DeYoung once said, with Jesus, familiarity bred unbelief. In Jesus Christ, God same came so close to humanity that we took offense to it. You know, like, yeah, go ahead, Lord, reign and, you know, go be king and get rid of the Romans because we're sick of them and we're being overtaxed and make me some food. But don't stand so close to me. And then even more than being offended at him, they're starting to be offended at one another. Now they're debating each other. If you look at verse 52, John tells us the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Sounds like the same thing Nicodemus said. How could I be born again? How can I enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? Or the Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar who said to him, what living water? Give me this living water. I don't want to keep drawing water from this well. They're thinking in purely earthly tones, worldly ter terms, and they're not getting the metaphors. They're not understanding what he's trying to communicate. It's the same thing with these crowds. Now, we shouldn't scoff at this. They're confused, they're debating amongst each other, but we shouldn't be pridefully scoffful at that. You know, in the early centuries, Roman society would propagate a rumor that Christians were cannibals who ate someone's body and drank someone's blood. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the, the, the first interpretation that anybody would hear about that. And have we not always in the last 2,000 years and still to this day amongst ourselves argue about what Jesus is saying? Don't we still do it? Haven't we spent the last two to three years as a Christian culture in our society arguing about what Jesus said 2,000 years ago? We, we argue about what happened. For at least 1,000 years, Christians have been arguing about what actually happens during communion when we take the bread and the cup. We've argued over how to baptize people and when to baptize them. We've even argued more recently. We've quarreled with one another over how to love our enemies. How do we love our enemies? How do we love people who are different? How do we love 
our neighbors? How do we coexist with each other and with those outside of our faith? Have we not quarreled over these issues? Have we not divided over the very words that Jesus has spoken because we interpret them different, differently and have different expectations and motives when we hear what Jesus says? Haven't we divided amongst ourselves and even abandoned one another? because we can't agree on the words that come out of Jesus's mouth. So we're not really in a position to make fun of these people 2,000 years ago for missing what Jesus was trying to say. But Jesus called them beyond their worldly understanding to his spiritual meaning, just like he did with the woman in Samaria, just like he did patiently, compassionately, but truthfully with Nicodemus the Pharisee. In verse 63, next slide please, he says to them, he kind of makes sense of it all in a, in a way. He says, it is the spirit, the spirit of God. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, he's like, all right, get away from the, the, the idea of actually munching on my flesh here, okay? The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Just because they heard Jesus and just because they were close to him and they knew where his mailbox was when he was growing up doesn't mean they were understanding him. It's just like food. If what you consume in haste or in ignorance doesn't sit well with you, you reject it. Consuming and digestion are two different things. Digesting Jesus' words makes the difference between faith and unbelief. Faith and unbelief. And I want to apply that to everybody in the room, but, but to both Christians and any of, of you kind folks among us who wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian or if you're streaming in with us. First, I just want to talk to people who, who are not Christians, right? Or you're not sure, or you have your major doubts. I want you to ask yourself, whether what is causing you to, forgive the expression, choke on Christianity, if what is causing you to choke on Christianity might possibly be your own desires and expectations and assumptions that you are bringing with you, like those crowds. What if you have some expectations about what a leader should be, about what truth is, about who God is that are actually causing you to choke on what the Christian message is and who Jesus himself is. Or, or maybe like those folks who knew Jesus' family, maybe your proximity to Christianity is the issue. Maybe a friend or a family member or you know, a relative, maybe some politician or, or maybe some historical faults and blind spots in religion and in Christianity over the years and over the centuries have, have created a false familiarity for you with who Jesus really is and what he's really said. Maybe it's an issue of proximity for you. Anyway, I encourage you to do this, to aim to understand what's actually offending you. Don't assume you know. Think about it again. Look at it again. Ask yourself, what is really offending you 
about Christianity and ask God, hey, who knows, maybe he'll answer you, ask God to help you persevere through that offense. Just ask him to help you persevere. We see in John's gospel how patient God is with people who come to Jesus and doubt him and are skeptical of him. Nicodemus, the woman at the well. So I'm encouraging you, aim to understand what's actually offending you and then ask God to help you persevere through that offense to a point where you may actually be able to understand what, comprehend, not just consume, but digest what Jesus is saying and who he is. It all starts with him. However, if you're a Christian, so I'm talking to believers now, I want you to do something a little different. Ask yourself whether your response to unbelief in others, ask yourself whether your response to unbelief around you in the community, in the classroom, in your neighborhood, in your extended family, is your response to unbelief in others in agreement with Jesus, with how he responds to it? Is our response to unbelief in agreement with our Lord's response to unbelief? Look at verse 66. Next slide, please. John tells us it was many who deserted Jesus after these hard sayings. Not a few, not a handful. We are told many people deserted Jesus after this teaching. It wasn't the miracles that repelled them. It wasn't all the food. They ate their fill, and that didn't offend them. It was what he said. You know, as Christians, we, we witness about Jesus with our living, ups and downs. And we speak, we tell of the hope that we have in him when the opportunities in our relationships and interactions are ripe. And and we, uh, we serve people. We serve each other. We serve our neighbors. We even serve our enemies in the name of Jesus who taught us to do that. All of this is critically important. But if they rejected Jesus to his face, then surely they will reject us to our faces. Even as a homemaker and a parent understands this all too painfully well, you can lovingly pour yourself into preparing a meal that nobody wants to eat. Jesus said two times in this account. Next slide, please. And I'll just share one of them. Verse 44, what did he say to them? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'm just gonna share with you uh, some thoughts I wrote down in my own journal last year when I was just reading through this gospel of John. Um, and specifically, as, we got to, as I got to this passage in, um, in John, th- this, is, this is what my notes said, and this is something that I was wrestling with as a pastor, as a Christian leader in a time like this, in a cultural climate like this, with unbelief and offense all around us. I am coming to believe that a life lived well will play out like the life of Jesus. Some, even many, maybe most people will not comprehend it. 
Some people will take offense. Other people will waver and reconsider their commitment to the church or reconsider their association with me. The key then is that I must not be offended by this. If I'm living well for God and acting, speaking out of his purposes, then some people will comprehend and some people won't. Some will be grateful and others will be angry. Some will be intrigued and some people will be bored. I must work with whomever God draws in. We must work with whomever doesn't leave. And I must pray for and I must compassionately pity those who tune out. So I want to encourage you, aim to understand, if you're a Christian now, aim to understand who is offended and why they're offended. Aim to understand who is offended and why they are offended. And if you discover that they are simply offended because the aroma of Jesus in you and around us is pungent to them and detestable to them, okay. Jesus says, blessed are you. But if they're offended because of our sin, because of our blind spots, because we are coming to the words of Jesus with our own misunderstandings and false expectations, like the crowds were, well, then we've got something, we've got some heart work to do and some practical changes to make. So aim to understand the nature of the offense and then ask God for the patience to persevere. The, some people need to ask for the patience to persevere through their own offense, and some of us need to ask God for the patience to persevere through a climate of offense. How do we persevere? How do we persevere through our own doubts and confusions and, and, and persevere through the offense that other people have? We persevere by finding our satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. And it's kind of what he's really getting at here, finding our nourishment and our contentment in Jesus Christ alone. We persevere by being satisfied with Jesus in who he is, not in who we want him to be. You have to come to a point, this is how you persevere, and this is how you find satisfaction in Jesus alone. You have to come to a point where there's nobody else. You have to come to a point where you go, there's no one else, there's nowhere else to turn. He's the only one. Maybe you think that's pathetic, but I'm happy I finally got there. You have to get to a place in your life where you go, I have no one else to turn to. Essentially, Peter, for one of the few times he said it right, got it right. Next slide, please. Simon Peter, because Jesus says his disciples, because he started explaining it in more detail to his actual disciples, not just the crowds leave, and now it's most of his followers. And they start leaving, and then he turns to the 12. And he says, you're going to leave me too? And then Peter pipes up, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, we've got, we've got no, we don't understand what you're saying, but we know we've got nowhere else to go. That's perseverance. We think we know what we want for food. 
right? We think we know what we want for food, and what I mean by that is what Jesus means by it. We think we know what we want in religion. We think we know what we want in our leaders, in our heroes, in our idols. And C.S. Lewis commented on that. In his book, The Problem of Pain, next slide, please. In his book, The Problem of Pain, talking about a dissatisfied heart. And he says, if we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe grows, then we must starve eternally. It's like we have an appetite, but Jesus isn't making what's on the menu. We show up, we know what we want to eat, and Jesus says, that's not what I'm cooking. He is really fulfilling the sense of the prophet Isaiah. We read it earlier today. Next slide, please. Isaiah 55, where God says to the ancient people of Israel, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for what does not satisfy? Listen, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. See, now you know how Jesus is not talking about food. He says, Listen to me, incline your ear, and come to me here that your soul may live. Jesus is saying to us, hey, you're craving frozen chicken nuggets, and I've made you a feast. By the way, if you just like made frozen chicken nuggets for your family in the last week, it's okay. Like, it's, it's cool. We do it too. It's a metaphor, okay? I don't want any emails about frozen chicken nuggets. Jesus has prepared a feast, and, and you know, we're, we're, we're looking for the, the simplest of flavors. Those who persevere, okay, those who persevere in not simply consuming the truth of Jesus, but digesting the truth of Jesus, will actually learn to feast on it. You have to digest what Jesus is bringing in order to feast on it with joy and be satisfied. The prophet Jeremiah said something beautiful. Jeremiah, next next slide, please. Jeremiah was a guy who served and preached faithfully and nobody listened to him. Nobody listened to this guy. They put him in prison for the things he was saying. But he said to God, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. This is so personal. This is so personal. Jesus is drawing them to himself. When Jesus says, hey, stop buying food that's not satisfying you, he's saying, I'm what you need. The true food is me. I'm what's going to satisfy you. God's truth becomes a feast in light of what Jesus did for us. When we think, right, that that Jesus was crucified for us, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that is as personal as it gets. That is as close in proximity to you as it gets. And what we are told is that the world will either look at that and be so embarrassed and so repulsed and so scandalized, or people will embrace it. And that's the difference between faith and unbelief. Next slide, please. 
When Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, that either embarrasses and puts you off and leaves a horrible taste in your mouth or it's joy to your soul. It's, it's, it's life. It's like the food you eat and the water you drink and you can't live without it. The crowds couldn't understand those words. Neither could I if I was there. The crowds couldn't understand those words and many of them rejected Jesus. The 12 didn't understand either. The tw- See, you, you thought I was gonna say the 12 didn't desert him. I know, they didn't get it either. The 12 didn't understand those words. But they knew there was no one else to go to. There was no other rabbi. There was no other rabbi cooking up what Jesus was cooking up. And so they said, Lord, we're sticking with you because you're the only one. We still don't know what you're saying. And that's perseverance. But we understand, unlike Peter in that moment, we understand what Jesus was talking about. His body, his blood, a sacrifice for us. Last slide. Being a Christian means we hunger for what God alone offers us, his son, right? We've said this before. At the end of the day, you know, you peel back all the layers of the onion, you pull back the curtain, and it's God saying, it's me. (laughs) It's me. It's all me. Everything you want, everything you're waiting for, everything I've been promising you, it's me. I'm what you need. What, Jesus, what God offers that no one else can offer is his son, is himself. Like that's more than religion. That's more than leadership. That's more than, that's, that's more than food. That's, that's God saying, I'm giving you myself. Even, even if it costs me my own flesh and blood, I'm giving you myself. And so Jesus calls himself the bread of life. The fact that God gave himself for you, if you receive that, it sustains you every day and forever. He gives what no one else can give, his son to all who are willing to get beyond their initial offenses to eat, to partake to digest, and to rejoice. So, aim to understand what is offending you and ask God for the grace to persevere through that offense so that what once was distasteful to you becomes a rich feast. Let's pray. Father, I, I just ask that my, uh, my feeble attempts here at sticking some frozen food in the oven and presenting it to my friends here would, would, would by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, do something in us that will bear eternal fruit. I pray, Lord, that your truth, that the words we have heard today from your word 
would not simply come into our minds, but that it would seep into our souls, that we would do more than consume, but that we would digest your truth. Lord, so that it is a feast to us, that we can rejoice and enjoy all that you have prepared. Thank you for sending your son. We have nowhere else to turn. We have no one else to turn to. Lord, be with those today who are offended. Be with those today who carry doubts, objections, offenses. And Lord, by your grace, help them and help us with them. Sort that out. Amen.